Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Good morning. I'm still adjusting to Lompoc, obviously, in about eight months. And one of the things that just keeps tripping me out, this has got nothing to do with the message, is the schizophrenic weather. I mean, what's, what's going on? You know, we go from like hurricane force winds to 85 degrees to it's sunny at my house and it's foggy down here and then it's foggy at my house and it's, there's just a serious lack of clarity. So I think I, I need somebody to do something. You just need to figure this out for me, okay? It's Lompoc, honey. Okay, that is a bumper sticker right there. I'm going to make a ton of money right now. I'm going to give you 25%. So anytime I just say something, you go, oh, it's Lompoc, honey. All right. Hey, we are in a series uh, called Rising Above. Pastor Bernie kicked this off a few weeks ago where coming out of Easter and what Jesus did to usher in a new way of living post-resurrection, we're looking at rising above, um, taking the teachings of Jesus and looking for ways that people after the Gospels begin to live them out. Because who knows that Jesus is always calling us to something higher. And if you're someone who grew up in a legalistic household, let me just say to you that the higher thing that Jesus calls us up to is not simply a, a, a particular method of behavior, but it has to do with living into our calling as fully devoted followers of Jesus. And when we live into our calling as full, fully devoted followers of Jesus, we get to experience things that the rest of the world doesn't get to experience. So this is what we're talking about this morning, uh, being all in in our pursuit of Jesus. Years ago, a friend of mine wrote a book called Deal Me In. Uh, he had never written a book before, but he somehow got connected with a guy named Phil Helmuth. Phil Helmuth uh, is also known as the poker brat. Uh, he was a high-stakes poker player, and he decided that he wanted to have a book ghostwritten about 20 of the most influential poker players of the time. So my buddy would fly to Vegas, and he'd interview guys like Phil Helmuth, obviously, Phil Ivey, Doyle Brunson, uh, Daniel Negrano, Johnny Chan, he'd come back and he'd write a chapter about that interview. Well, Steve had never written a book before, so he said, hey, John, would you help me out? Um, I'm going to write a chapter, you edit the chapter, then we'll send it to the publisher, which was fine with me. I, did, I was like, I've never edited a book, but yeah, why not? Let's give it a shot. So as I started reading these guys' stories, I started getting really interested in a game called Texas Hold'em. It's the game most of them played. Not only Texas Hold'em, but an event called the World Series of Poker. Once a year, thousands of people would come to Las Vegas, they'd pay an entry fee, and then they would play in a winner-take-all tournament, well, I guess the first maybe eight paid out, where there were millions of dollars of prize money on the, on the line. So ESPN started to carry this, and once ESPN carries it, obviously it's a legitimate sport, so I felt fine about watching it. So I'm, I, I love the interplay, I love the conversations, but there was one moment in in, uh, in every tournament that I just got, got my blood going. And it was when somebody would go all in. Now, if you're going to win the tournament, this happens time and time and time again, where you have to put all your chips in the middle of the table. And if the other guy beats you and you busted, you're done. There's no rebuy. But if you really want to get to the pinnacle of the poker world, you have to fully commit everything you have. You put all your trust in the cards, your ability to read your opponent, and hope that you're going to be able to win. Always super exciting moment. Then I started thinking, because I'm always thinking, what would it look like if a community of faith pursued Jesus the same way? 
like there were moments of high tension, high opportunity, and we were willing to take great risk for the potential of great reward. If, if Christ followers would come to the place where they're like, you know what, I'm going all in. And when I think about that, there's two verses that immediately come to mind. The first is in Matthew 22, verse 37. It's Jesus talking. They said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is, this is what it means to be all in. And I was so encouraged uh, a few weeks ago when Pastor Bernie shared this verse with us, and then he was just super honest and transparent. He goes, I'm not always there. I always want to be there, but I don't always feel like I'm fully devoted, like my whole heart. So it seems like there might be some moments of Holy Spirit engagement where we have the opportunity to kind of go, okay, Lord, in this moment, I'm coming all in, my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole mind, all my strength. The second verse that comes to mind is Matthew 24, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. These are like those all-in propositions. My whole heart, my whole mind, all of my strength, my, my entire life. And the promise is that when we decide to follow Jesus this way, look at this, whoever loses their life for me will find it. When we choose to follow our life this way, we step into something that is not otherwise possible for us. As a young man, I would read this verse and I would always focus on losing. But this is a promise that when we live fully devoted, abandoned to the cause of Christ, we discover a way of living that is not available to the world around us. We become men and women who are fully living into their design as co-stewards of God's creation. So there's this invitation from God, like, hey, if you guys go all in, you'll get to experience something that you don't get to experience any other way. And so I'm, I'm thinking about all in, and I'm, I'm reading scripture, and, and what I want to do this morning is I, I'm thinking back to Pastor Bernie's message about three weeks ago about Peter's engagement with Jesus at the end of John. And I want to I look at Peter's response to Jesus' charge to feed his sheep. Because G, uh, Peter, excuse me, had been a textbook example of what it means to risk nothing. If there are any Monty Python fans in the room, Peter is the one who would run away, run away, run away, right? It, clearly, some of you guys need to, need to step into your, your, your movie catalog and see some movies that you haven't seen in a while. Peter is the one that denied Jesus the one that ran away. And so if he comes to a place where he's willing to take exceptional risk for the cause of Christ, I want to learn from that story. So three weeks ago, Pastor Bernie talked about that dialogue between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus is saying, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, I love you. And, and three times Jesus said, either feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Now, Jesus lived in an agrarian society. And so he would often use examples, wheat, weeds, sheep, seeds, that, that would help people kind of understand in their context what Jesus is talking about. And sheep is one he uses very often. He, he says that his sheep would know his voice. He, he calls himself the good shepherd. He says to his disciples in Matthew 15, 24, he's been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And then he says in Matthew 18, <coughs> excuse me, that was attractive. Matthew 18, he says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what's he going to do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that's lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that didn't wander away. 
I point this out because it's important to remember as Jesus is telling Peter to feed his sheep that not all of those sheep are presently in the pasture. So from time to time, we are going to have to live oriented toward those outside the maybe the four walls of our church or our internal community because if we're going to be feeding sheep on Jesus' behalf, they're not all people who know him or are in present relationship with him. So we're going to look at Peter, Acts 3, Acts 4. And the question I would like you to have in the back of your mind as we have this conversation is if this is what going all in looks like for Peter, what does going all in look like for me? So here's, here's the backstory. So we've got feed my sheep just happened. And then Acts chapter 2, there's this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so then we get to Acts chapter 3. I'm just going to tell you part of this story. So Peter and John are on their way to the temple. The Bible says, as was their custom. So they would go to the temple where the early church would gather, and they would teach people in an area of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade, the same place where Jesus would go and teach. So one day, Peter and John are walking toward the western gate of the temple. It's a, it's a gate called Beautiful. That was its name. And as they are walking toward the gate, there is another procession where a man is being carried to that same gate. Now, he is lame. He's 40 years old. He has never walked. He was born lame. And people would carry him to the gate called Beautiful to sit and beg because apparently as people go to church, they're more generous. So he, he figured, if I sit here, I'm going to do well. So as the two of them are coming together, he sees Peter and John, and he asks them for money. That's why he was there. Peter looks at him, and he goes, I'm broke. I, I got nothing. Now, Peter had a decision. He could have just ignored him and, and kept on walking. He could have asked John for a 10 spot, like, hey, can I, can I borrow 10 so I can, I can give this guy some money? Or he could have done what he chooses to do. There's something about Peter in this moment that seems to be attuned to opportunity as the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. Because as I read the Gospels, Peter is not the kind, compassionate, caring guy, right? He is the firebrand looking for a fight. But here, something transformational seems to have taken place. Acts 3, verse 6. Peter directed his gaze at him, at the lame man, as did John, and said, look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and I have no gold. I'm broke. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And then the scripture goes on to say, he takes the man by the hand and he pulls him to his feet. I, I love, this is like a story for another day, but I love that Peter brings this place guy to a faith decision and then helps him take his first step. So Peter is looking for lost sheep. He is aware of the fact that not everybody Jesus brings to him is going to look, smell, talk the same. This man is definitely on the outside. He's as close to the temple as he can get, but he's not allowed inside. The sick and the lame were not allowed into the temple. So he's excluded from religious community. Not only from religious community, but the understanding was at the time that if you were sick, lame, blind, it was because sin had somehow taken up root in your life, which causes you to be isolated not only from the religious community, but from the secular community as well. But Peter doesn't see a cripple. Peter doesn't see a sin-stained man. Peter sees a lost sheep who Jesus went to the cross not only to save, but also to heal. Which leads me to the question, what do I see on my way to church on Sunday morning? 
And am I allowing the Holy Spirit to shape my perspective to see lost sheep as I, as I drive in? This morning, about 6.30, I'm uh, coming down 8th Street, and I decide I'm going to go to Starbucks, get a little pick-me-up. And I, I need to turn left into the driveway, uh, the drive through and, and I don't know if you have to do it in the parking lot, but I'm a, I'm a responsible citizen, hit my left turn signal. There's another car that's probably a good 50 feet away clearly sees my turn indicator. I am clearly there first, and everyone knows whoever gets to the drive through first gets to go first. Am I right? Right. right. Not this fella. And he, he, goes, he goes ripping in there. And I am not seeing a lost sheep. I'm seeing a dude that needs to get pulled out of his car and taught drive through etiquette. Right? Your blood pressure just starts like... So I'm sitting behind him in his nice little sports car, and, and he places his order, and I drive up, and, and it's my turn. And she says, what do you want? I said, I need my oatmeal. I need my red eye, a little bit of pick-me-up. And I need to pay for that guy's coffee. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I need to pay for that guy's coffee. Because I realized there might have been something out of alignment in his heart, but there was definitely something out of alignment in my heart, right? This is someone Jesus loves, and I wanted to pummel him. So I needed to take the step to get my heart into alignment regardless of what was going on in his heart. And because God is good, all he ordered was a drip coffee. It cost me $2.50. And I got to keep my peace. It was amazing. So the question, right, is how are we allowing the Holy Spirit to shape our perspective as we walk through our day-to-day? Peter had probably seen that man there time and time again because he was often carried there to beg. And this is how Peter and John would have gone in. But in this day, he is attuned to the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to him because he wants to use him. So verse 6, excuse me, I already read verse 6. Because Peter sees a sheep and not an outcast, because he sees a sheep and not a cripple, the life and the love and the power of God are able to flow through Peter into this man. The next verse says he he takes the guy by the hand and he pulls him to his feet. And in a moment, not only is he physically healed, not only is his body restored, but he is restored back into the community of Israel. Not just the religious community, but now his social community because that stigma that would have kept people from him has been removed by the power of God. A lost sheep is found and fed and healed. This this is what living all in with Jesus looks like. It looks like seeing ourselves as an answer to the needs around us. It means being postured in a way that when the Holy Spirit says, John, quit muttering and buy the guy's coffee, we're actually willing to respond. He didn't get saved. He didn't get healed. But there was, thank you, Jesus, in that moment, enough awareness in my heart to what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do to partner with him. In this case, it was for my healing. In another time, it will be for a healing for someone else. Jesus says to his disciples earlier, he says, freely you have received, freely give. And often we'll talk about kind of the complexities of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. And and this word actually means this or it means that. Do you know what freely means? It means freely. That was a freebie. Whatever I have given to you without cost, give to others without cost. And, and what have we received? We've received forgiveness. We've, we've received the message of the cross, reconciliation, the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're meant to give all of that away. This is what Peter is doing. What I have received from Jesus, I now give to you. 
And as Peter is on his way to church, a chance encounter becomes an opportunity for a life to be forever changed. Stay with me, because I'm going somewhere with this. So the man's healed, and he grabs hold of Peter, and he enters the temple with him for the very first time in his life. He has never been able to enter before. And the guy loses his mind. He is jumping. He is dancing. He is shouting. Any of you guys remember that song from Sunday school like 35, 40 years ago? Dancing and jumping and praising. Yeah, okay, one of us. All right. We'll sing it together later. A great song. Because this man had sat by the temple every day, he was a known fixture in the community. And so when they see him not begging but dancing and worshiping, they take notice. They recognize him. And when Peter realizes that they're paying attention, it says in verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Because an audience plus a message becomes an opportunity for Holy Spirit engagement. Jesus will provide opportunities for us to lean into the instruction of the Holy Spirit and speak life or hope or healing to people when we're not really even expecting it. This is what happens here. And in response, Peter just tells people what he knows. We could say he preaches a message. Sure, he did. Please remember with me that Peter is not a preacher. Peter is a fisherman. So Peter is just telling people his story that he has experienced as he has walked with Jesus. Now, he doesn't hold anything back. I mean, he, he lays it out. He tells them the truth. He says, hey, listen, sin has kept you far from God. God sent his son to deal with sin and the problem of evil, and in response, you killed him. But then he goes on to say, if you repent, if you turn, then times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Sometimes going all in means being prepared to speak the truth in love whenever the opportunity arises. Or as we saw moments ago, it can mean being prepared to act in love whenever the opportunity arises. Peter has a conversation with the people, but he doesn't argue with them. He's not there to win an argument. He's there to win the people. And sometimes, sometimes, when we get in, in, in conversations about the things of God, especially with people who are far from God, we're trying to win an argument. And when we try to win an argument, we lose the person. And so Peter doesn't shy from the truth, but there is this aspect of communicating the truth in love that allows him to speak truthfully the things of God, but lead people into a response. Because the Bible says 5,000 people respond to his message. 5,000. This guy's gone from 3,000 to 5,000. I need to take his class on preaching. What you need to remember, what I need to remember, both in the healing and in the teaching, is it's fairly risky to do what he is doing. He's preaching about Jesus in the temple, which is the home turf for the people who just killed him. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I do have to tell you, in, in all fairness, that uh, I'm still in the introduction. Haven't even gotten to the message yet. Here's, here's the good news. It's about a 25-minute introduction and a five-minute message, so don't freak out. Okay, now, I don't know if you've ever done something amazing for Jesus. You've trusted Jesus. You've taken a step of faith. There's been a great response. And then you found that not everybody thought you were awesome for what you had just done. Anybody? Yeah, okay. Peter, too, you're in good company. 
Acts 4, 1 through 3. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So there's three people, three groups of people that, that Peter and John anger. The first is the temple guards. Now, their job is to maintain order in the temple courts. They're obviously irritated because this guy is dancing and jumping and screaming. 5,000 people are responding. So it's a, it's a tad chaotic, maybe a mini riot in the temple courts. Now, the priests are mad because the priests are the experts in the religious law. All things about God, if you want to know, you go to a priest. But can I just tell you that the good news of Jesus, it was never God's plan to leave that to the experts. It was never the plan of God to leave it to the experts, but rather to you and me. Think about who we called. A couple of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, a bunch of other knuckleheads. And and these are the people that Jesus calls and says, you are going to be my emissaries to spread this really all over the globe. You and I, with our organizational leadership background, would look at the 12 people Jesus called and goes, no, that's not right. But when Jesus looks at at the world that's broken and lost, and he goes, I wonder who the best people to send are, he looks at you, not the expert. If your theology says, I need to reach the community for Jesus for you, you're missing out on the fullness of what God wants for you. I'm going to go do it. It's going to be a ton of fun. But you're not going to be living into the fullness of God's call for you, which means you will not be experiencing what it means to be fully alive because you've gone all in. Sorry, that's a digression. Anyway. The Sadducees are the third group that's mad. Now, the reason they're mad is they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So you've got the temple guys that are maintaining order. You've got the priests who are supposed to be the experts. And you've got the Sadducees who disagree theologically with what Peter is saying because he was proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. When it says they're greatly annoyed, it means they're hot. It means they're super worked up. It's it's the same word that Uh, Luke is going to use later in Acts to describe how Paul feels about the demonized girl that keeps walking around behind him going, this guy is anointed by God, until he finally turns around, tells her to shut up and cast the demon out and causes another riot, incidentally. They didn't like him because they didn't like his message. Anybody else ever been there? I just, okay, I got a good response for that one. Heck yeah. Let's just be, anyway. So they throw him in jail overnight. Now, at this point in the story, I can't help but wonder what John is thinking. Because as I'm reading, he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't said a thing. It's all been Peter. So is he thinking, this is awesome? Or is he thinking, bro, could you not shut up just one time? Like, seriously, Peter, one time, could you not keep your mouth shut? We don't know. What we do know is because they were thrown in jail overnight, they have all night to think about the consequences of their action and what they're going to do next. Now, on the positive side, A lame guy got healed and 5,000 people got saved. On the negative side, they're in jail. So the next day, they're called out of jail, not to speak with the priests and the Sadducees and the temple guards, but to speak with a group of people called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the religious and political ruling body of the nation of Israel. It is everyone of influence. These are the culture shapers. These are the people who took Jesus to Pilate and said, you need to kill him. In other words, if you want like a, a current context, they get a subpoena to appear before Congress. That's, that's basically who this group is. The next day, verse 5, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there. 
so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? If some of those names sound familiar to you, it's because this is the same group of people who had Jesus questioned, arrested, and then taken to Pilate to crucify him. It was at Caiaphas' house that Peter denied even knowing Jesus. But here's the thing. We have the same audience, but a very, very different Peter. Peter, at this point, has learned what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to let him lead him. And I think there might have been a couple things echoing in Peter's mind on that day. The first would be Jesus' encouragement, feed my sheep. The second is a promise of the role of the Holy Spirit in moments like this. It's found in Luke 12, 11. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. Why? The Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is exactly where Peter finds himself, in front of the rulers and the authorities. But he still has to make a decision. Will he speak of what he knows, or will he defer to those who crucified Jesus? Will he try to save his life? Or is he willing to put it at risk in order to really live? And so Peter says, I'm in. I am, everything's in the middle of the table. I'm all in. It says in verse 8, Peter, but don't lose track of these five words, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Talk about a transformation. Not just with his courage and his articulation, but in his understanding. Remember, this is the same guy who Jesus looked at and said, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Something has happened in Peter's life by virtue of the Holy Spirit that has given him clarity and understanding, the ability to communicate, and the courage to stand in the face of opposition and speak the truth. This is the promise for Peter and for you and me. When you need to know what to say, the Holy Spirit will tell you. When you present yourself to the Lord to be used, the Holy Spirit will give you the language that you need to communicate his truth. I'm not smart enough to plan it out in advance. I need to know that when I open my mouth, the Holy Spirit is going to fill it. That's a faith step. It requires courage, but it's what it means to go all in. God, I'm going to trust That when I open my mouth, this is what Peter would do. God, I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to talk to the religious rulers and those in authority. You said the Holy Spirit would give me the words to say. They don't come out until my gums start flapping. So if we wait, every word to say, I'm going to memorize it, and then I'm going to blah. We'll never say anything. But when we believe that Jesus is a truth teller and he keeps his word, then we make ourselves available and begin to speak what little we know, trusting that the Holy Spirit's going to come behind and give us the rest. 
And here's the beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit has made Peter a subject matter expert. You have a fisherman, don't forget that, a fisherman explaining theology and the plans of God to the Sanhedrin, men who had spent their entire lives studying it. It's all they did. And Peter stands in front of him and goes, fellas, let me break this down for you. If you want a current example, like what would this look like in our context? You take, you take a crab fisherman in the Bering Sea. You put him on a plane and you send him to Washington, D.C., where he or she appears before a joint session of Congress, throw in the Supreme Court, the president and his cabinet, and have him explain to them what the Constitution really means and how they've missed the boat and what they need to do to come back into alignment. This is what is happening with Peter. Let me break it down for you guys. Not because Peter suddenly became a genius, but because Peter took a risk and made himself available to the Holy Spirit, and God keeps his word. Are you picking up what I'm putting down this morning? All right. You've heard this said, but I'm going to say it again. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. If God called the qualified, all of those men sitting in judgment on Peter would be the ones that God was using. But God goes to a fisherman and says, follow me. He says, okay, and then God says, let me give you what you need. This is how he works. Peter's still a fisherman. He was fishing two months earlier. But now he's a fisherman filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and living under his influence, which makes all the difference. And Peter has what he needs when he needs it. He doesn't have it earlier. As it in the moment. God is a right on time kind of God. And so Peter has the courage to say to these guys, it's all about Jesus, period, end of report, take it or leave it. I'm almost to the message. Here it comes, Acts 4.13. These guys are like, <sighs> when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, fishermen, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They see Peter and John's boldness. That means fearless confidence, or my favorite translation, his cheerful courage. Peter's not knocking his knees together. He is cheerfully explaining to them the things of God. But here's the other thing. Boldness does not always mean speaking. They see Peter's boldness and John's boldness. And from what I read, John hasn't said a word. So I don't want you to leave this morning hearing me say to you, if you ain't preaching the word of God, you're not living boldly. That's not what I see in the story. I see some are going to articulate truth with power, and others are going to demonstrate the love and the grace and the kindness of God as vessels of healing to a broken community. Both are bold because both rely on Jesus. They took note. These men have been with Jesus. I, I think they're looking at each other going, this sounds a lot like this other guy we couldn't argue with. Uh, and now there's two of them. What just happened? I'll tell you what happened. We become what we behold. If you ever wonder why Pastor Bernie is so passionate about encouraging us to spend time with God in the Word through soap journaling, it's because we become what we behold. When we spend time with Jesus receiving both his encouragement, his instruction, and even his correction, we become more like him. That's the story of Peter and the story of John, and that's what was messing with the heads of those in the Sanhedrin. To such an extent that these orators, these professional speakers, these well-read men 
resort to middle school debate tactics to finish this conversation. Shut up. That's all they got. Don't talk anymore. You can't do it. I can't complain. I can't explain it. You just, technically it says they commanded them no longer to speak in this name. But Peter and John replied. This is brilliant. What's right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him? That is the most brilliant question they could have asked them because no religious leader worth their salt is going to be able to look at them and go, well, listen to me, not God. This is God providing supernatural wisdom to a fisherman. He says, you be the judge. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. A couple of fishermen looking at the most powerful men in the nation and kind of going, you're not the boss of me. God is. And so I'm going to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit, whether that makes sense to you. I can't help but align with his work and his will for me. I don't think they do it in arrogance. I just think they did it in honesty and in power. I think they're saying, I'm living an all-in kind of life, and I'm not going to let anybody else compromise that. Which brings us back to the question, what does all-in look like for you? Because there are going to be moments where Jesus invites you to go all-in. What do you need from the Holy Spirit to be able to respond that way in those moments? The Sanhedrin, they threatened Peter and John, and then they let him go. Now, they could have done a number of things. They could have just gone home and been quiet. They could have gone home and gone, ha, 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 we got away with it. They could have gone home and gone, that was close, let's never do that again. But they return to the fellowship of the believers, and they pray a very specific prayer. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with cheerful courage while you stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let me tell you what I see in that prayer. First, they're not taking this personally. It's not their work or their will that's being threatened. It's the work and the will of God. They aren't offended by the fact that they're facing opposition. This should come as news to no one because Jesus said, quite specifically, in this world, you're going to have something called tribulation. Then he goes on to say, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Secondly, they remain committed. God, consider their threats. You heard what they're saying because they want to stop what you were up to. And here's how we think you could respond. I think you should stretch out your hand and heal even more people. God, I think you should stretch out your hand and give an even greater message. And God, I think you should do that through us. Where do I see that? Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, give us the ability, the courage to do the things that got us in trouble in the first place. Because we understand that what happened in that moment when this guy was healed and these people were saved was that your kingdom was coming to earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, you taught us to pray that way. So give us the courage to live out our assignment here on earth as your representatives. Now, obviously, that's my paraphrase. But they were praying that the kingdom of God would be made evident on earth as it had, as Jesus was ministering to people. That kind of a prayer, God, help me bring your kingdom to bear on earth, I believe is one of the kinds of prayers that God gets most excited about answering. And here's why I think that. Verse four, or chapter 4, verse 31, God responds immediately. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the second time in a very short amount of time that a room is shaken by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to disciples who are gathered in prayer and available to minister on God's behalf. God, give us boldness. Why do I so respect that prayer? Because it identifies an inherent lack of ability in their own strength. You don't pray, God, give me boldness, unless you don't feel very bold. There's honesty in that prayer. God, I don't know that I can do this. I don't know that I can speak your word. I don't know that I can show your love. I don't know that I can pray for the sick. But God, would you give me the kind of cheerful courage that allows me to do those things that I can't do in my own strength? All week I've been thinking, what would happen if we became a people who prayed room-shaking prayers? And how do you pray a room-shaking prayer? You say, God, give me what I don't have in my own strength that I might minister on your behalf. We let Jesus define what that ministry looks like. We recognize our own lack of ability, and we make ourselves available. And in response, the Holy Spirit falls. And you know the rest of the story if you've read the rest of Acts. It's just up and to the right. Yes, they experience resistance both to the message of the cross and the work of the Spirit. But they continue to move forward with courage. I'm going to ask the team to sing this chorus again over us. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And as they do, I want to encourage you to have a conversation with the Lord. Are you in a place where you would like to go all in? But maybe you're lacking the courage. God's great with that. Say, Lord, I need your help. God, give me boldness to share your heart, to share your mission, to reach the broken. Or maybe it's, it's even as simple as, God, give me your perspective so I stop seeing cripples who are asking me for money and start seeing people that you're about to raise to their feet again. And then create space, just quietly in your own heart and mind, for the Holy Spirit to begin to respond. Let's be still before the Lord. Let's be honest with him in our conversations. Lord, hear our prayer. We are your children, your sons and daughters. This same Peter goes on to write so much later that you've created us as a kingdom of priests, those who minister on your behalf. So give us boldness, cheerful courage. Lord, give us the ability to hear you as you lead us and ask us to respond. Understanding that you will lead us in ways that are consistent with who you made us to be. Not all will be speaking. Not all might be serving. But all will be used and utilized. God, there is a world outside that is broken and desperate for your love. In the words of Isaiah, here we are. Send us. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You are God's plan to bring about the kingdom of God in our community.
and he has no plan B. You're it. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.